Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today on Star Trek Age of Discovery, we dive into Sukal, the 11th episode of Season 3. We'll summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end our podcast with recent Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis will contain spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis. Sure. The episode begins where your last episode left off, and that is with Giorgio's wake. Gray appears to Adira, who is upset that they have not seen each other for a while. Gray explains he felt... He did not know how he fit into her into their lives anymore. As Adira was making and deepening relationships with other people, Adira told him they would find a way to work it out. Stamets reveals there is a possible life sign emanating from the Verubin Nebula, where a scientific Federation starship was lost over 125 years ago. Due to the intense radioactivity in the nebula and the number of years that have passed, most of the officers wonder how anyone could still be alive. Saru revealed a possible explanation based on the doomed ship's distress call that was made by Dr. Isa, who's a Kelpian. Originally, Tilly had identified the marking on her forehead as signs of radiation poisoning. However, Saru contradicted the diagnosis, stating the marks signaled Dr. Isa was carrying a child. Thus, the lone survivor could possibly, possibly be Isa's progeny. Hmm. Discovery travels to the Verubin Nebula to locate the detected life form. However, the ship is damaged as it enters the interstellar system. Book volunteers to use his ship for the reconnaissance mission and is able to pinpoint a location of the Kieth and the life form on the planet within the nebula. Saru contacts Admiral Vance for permission to investigate the life form and what is left of the Kieth. It is a risky mission since the away team will only have four hours to attempt to find the person before the radiation overcomes them. Saru suggests that he, Dr. Colbert, and Michael make up the away team while Tilly would take on the Discovery's comm. Vance consents to it, although he does not like the idea of placing Tilly in such a position with her limited command experience. Yeah, he says that with a whole lot of eye action. <laughs> and, and, and without saying one word, you, he's just unclear as the, the success of that action. All right. So Vance informs Saru he has ordered Federation starships to Kaminar. Since the Emerald Chain has been conducting military exercises nearby the planet, Saru immediately volunteers to abort the Nebula mission to instead protect his home planet. However, Michael reminds him it is probably a trap to lure the Discovery there to capture its spore drive. Vance assures Saru Kaminar will be safeguarded. Upon beam beaming into the Kieth, the away team notices they have been physically altered. Michael has the appearance of a trill, Hober looks like a Bajoran, and Saru seems to have taken on a human life form. 
Michael also r realizes the planet is primarily composed of the lithium. Mm. They soon find the lone survivor is a Kelpian named Sukal, who has been alone for over a century. Saru notes Sukal means beloved gift. The away team learns various holographic programs had been installed to train Sakal so he could survive while waiting to be rescued. During that time, his body somehow adapted to the dilithium environment so that it could withstand the radiation. Without interaction from real people for many decades, Sukal still behaves like a child. The manifestation of his fears created a monster that haunted him whenever he felt anxious or frightened. At one point, Sukal comes face to face with the monster and cries out. This causes such a significant interstellar disturbance that Michael theorizes Sukal must have caused the burn. Although the away team shows signs of radiation poisoning, they realize someone must stay with Sukal to keep him calm so not to risk setting off another cataclysmic event. It is decided that Colburn and Saru will remain while Michael will return to the Discovery to brief them on the situation. Back on Discovery, acting Captain Tilly finds be them being inhaled by the supposed Federation ship. However, the other vessel is soon revealed to be an Emerald Chain ship commanded by Osira. Tilly skillfully trades barbs with Osira while they prepare the ship to jump to safety. However, before Tilly can execute that escape, Osira seizes the discovery and takes the captain's chair. Her minions also place a mind control device on Stamets just as he is about to jump. Book takes his ship to pick up the away team, not knowing that Adira has stowed away on the vessel. They reveal themselves as Book reaches his destination. They tell him they are taking the away team a kit to help forestall the lethal effects of the radiation. Adira beams down to the kit while Michael joins Book. Just as Book's ship comes within sight of the Discovery, it jumps away, leaving Book and Michael behind. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's a great cliffhanger because it actually sets up everything that we're going to watch over the next couple of episodes. So now let's talk about the episode credits. Originally announced under the title, The Citadel, this episode had the name changed 24 hours before the episode was released. It was written by Anne Caulfield Saunders, who wrote episode six, Scavengers. Mm -hmm. And she um, gets another shot at Osira and the threat that the Emerald Chain presents to the Federation. And I think actually in this one, the characterization is much better for us oh, yeah. oh, than yeah. it was beforehand. Definitely. The episode is directed by Norma Bailey. She's a Canadian director and producer of Canadian television. Her body of work includes Stars' Outlander and the docudrama Project Blue Book for the History Channel. This is Miss Bailey's first opportunity to work on Star Trek. Yeah, she has a lot of credits in Canada, but most Amer Americans won't have seen those shows. Now let's jump into analysis sure. of the episode. Yep. So, so after a fabulous two-part episode where the show said goodbye to Michelle Yao, Discovery bounces back 
to, to a deep dive into the season's main arc. Sukal takes us headlong into the finale to discover the cause of the burn and hopefully reverse its effects. Thanks to Book's sensor extender, Stamets receives notification that there is a life sign detected aboard the Kiev. Saru surmises that it's the child of Kelpian Dr. Isa, who has somehow survived for 125 years. Saru's desires to see another living Kelpian for the first time since leaving his time period is powerful enough to get him to join the away team. I mean, in fact, the last time he actually saw a Kelpian face was the face of his sister in one of those ships to help them fight control at the tail end right before they did their jump. So he hasn't really seen any of his people. Oh, yeah. You know, aside from that 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 distress uh, call that they, they got, that he really hasn't seen any of his people in the flesh. Right. So, so let's talk about the two main characters in the, in the story. That's Sakal, obviously, and also Saru. Oddly enough, Sakal is reminiscent of Sevis Patchum Parabellum, episode eight from season one. If, if you remember back to there, um, it's another away mission where Michael, Ash Tyler, and Saru beam down to a planet called Pavo. In both stories, Saru's judgment is impaired by a self-serving desire that impedes his ability to be, to be objective. Mm-hmm. In the earlier episode, the Kelpian was seduced by the freedom of the planet provided him from his constant state of fear and anxiety. Uh, the feeling was so powerful and addictive that Saru nearly sabotaged the mission entirely. This time, Saru's desire to connect with his culture is impairing his ability to prioritize the mission over that desire. Rather than deliberately working to undermine the success as he did in the previous episode, he is finding difficulty in focusing on the mission's goals over those of being immersed in Kelpian culture, even if the cultural references are primarily presented to him by computer simulation. Right. So Michael has been aware of Saru's emotional bias from the moment they entered the Veruban Nebula. She saw how his desire for answers led him to jeopardize the safety of the ship. But she isn't the only one who noticed. Book picks up on this on the bridge as Saru hesitates in his command to pull the ship out of the nebula, putting the ship in further danger. His reckless actions have led to the need to repair the ship's defense systems at a time when they need them the most. And in fact, you know, we saw earlier that also Admiral Vance has noticed that Saru's judgment has been impaired by the fact that, you know, uh, that, 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 he saw Dr. Isis in, in this uh, tr- uh, distress call mm-hmm. and that, you know, and then when Vance said to him, oh, well, there are these ex- emerald chain uh, military exercises near Kaminar, right. he was ready to just, right. you know, run right. over there. Right, right, right. So, we, like I said, we've seen that he's not really making decisions based on what's best 
for this moment and for the Federation. That's right. He's making the, he's making these very impulsive decisions based on a con, you know connection back to his culture. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as it goes on because it's indicative of something we've actually been looking at throughout this entire season. Mm-hmm. So as he had informed um, Admiral Vance previously, Saru beamed aboard the Kiev, and instead of retrieving Sukal and returning to Discovery immediately, Saru becomes enamored by his own experiences in this simulated world. So he almost becomes seduced by it, similarly to the way Sakal oh, gets seduced. That's right. You know, he is stunned when he finds an elder Kelpian, someone older than he had ever seen on Kaminar when he was still there. And that's because... They they were cold, and so they were they would die before they get into the advanced age. Right. So so technically, we don't know how long Kelpians can live, right? Because right. no none of them had ever been allowed to live forever. And, and, and that goes for Saru. Saru com- has no idea how right. old that they could be. Right. So since they've gone through the Vahara, and they understand it's just a it's just a a change. They they lose their threat ganglia. They really are now at a point now where where the entire well, the culture should by now, right. in the in the future, be able to have a clear idea of the length of their of their 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 um life lifespan. Right. So he's all, and, and the other thing that in, in that is part of what seduces him is um, that elder who sings him a lullaby. Mm-hmm. You know, much like Sakal, Saru has lost all interest in everything outside of this simulation. Right. Um, and it takes Culber and Michael to help pull him back in. Right. So, however, when they encounter Sukal, he shows no interest in the outside or anyone from, right. uh, or anyone from the outside. But as if he doesn't have enough to fear, he has created another thread inside the simulation that has to be locked inside a chamber to protect the world from this imaginary creature. There is a scene with Michael performing as if she is part of the simulation where Sukal clearly articulates his disinterest in the world outside. So Sukal says, there used to be lots of hollows that talked about outside. But the outside never came inside. Probably the outside is dead by now. And Michael responds, well, I was also programmed to help you understand that what is outside? Sukal says, I'm sorry to have to tell you, you are obsolete. Sukal's reluctance in exploring the outside is an unwillingness to experience the unknown and the unfamiliar. He lets Fear dictated his actions. He's even created a simulated monster from from a story that he he wrote himself that seems to be unable to control now. But in each encounter, Michael, Saru, or Sakal has with this monster, it appears to be menacing and threatening everyone, but doesn't harm anyone. Later in the episode, Sukal attempts to build a ward to repel the creature. Instead, the creature destroys it and confronts Sukal repeatedly saying, see me. This triggers Sukal into a scream that releases so much energy that it forces both Discovery and Osiris' ship to decloak. Obviously, we're supposed to conclude that the creature isn't so much a being, but rather a manifestation of some childhood trauma. Sukal has given his fears a physical shape, 
this might have been a similar event to what caused the burn. So coal appears to be the catalyst. Right. There is a line that a Kelpian, that the Kelpian elder actually says to Saru and Colbert that may actually inform what we're talking about. He basically gives them a warning, understanding that so long as he, meaning Sukal, will not face his fears or the monster, he will remain in this place. All right. So, so that means that two things are quite obvious, that the solution is to get Sukal to overcome his fears and defeat the monster. Unfortunately, it's easier said than done. Still, Saru is the key. Okay. So let's, let's go on and let's talk about the Emerald Chain because they're a key component here as well. Um, the Emerald Chain, how, how, how obsessed do you have to be to be Osiris? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, after taking significant damage at Quijon, staging a military exercises near Kaminar, and I assume continuing to run a transgalactic trade syndicate, how fixated is Osira that she jumps through a transwarp tunnel, which is not a guarantee of getting you where you want That's to be. That's right. Okay. And mask her ship as a Federation ship. And at the same time, she she is hunting for discovery. Also, Osira and her forces have information they really shouldn't have. Right. Uh, she found discovery without a problem. She knew Tilly's personality traits pretty much down to a T. They were able to project a false Federation signature for the ship. And Osira knows about Stamets and the Spore Cube as well. Uh, as they say something specific before they conduct a spore jump. Could there be a mole on the Discovery? Or is there an emerald chain listening device on the ship? Could Book's sensor extender be a two-way transmitter that fed Osira with a great deal of information without revealing itself to Discovery? These questions have to be answered, or else there's a huge plot hole. Right, here. right, right, because there, it doesn't make sense for her to know all that. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah she, in such a short amount of in time. In such a short amount of time, because if she's over at Kaminar staging these military actions... And we, we have to assume she, her ship is over there until they realize Discovery's not coming to the bait. Right. Then she comes all the way from over there to where they are without without a, a, a spore drive That's herself. That's right. And That's right. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just amazing that all this happens and it's just such a short amount of time. It's just a, and it's very convenient that they're able to oh, do yeah. all these things. It's so, way too convenient. So she has to have some, receive some information somehow. Yeah. So hopefully in the next episode or two, we'll hear what that is. Otherwise you're right. It is it's a, just a huge plot, plot hole. just sitting there. Yeah. Okay. The other thing we want to talk about, and this is what I was getting at when we were, when we were discussing um, Saru's dilemma in capturing you know being pulled by his culture and, and his desire to reconnect with his people is that there has been a a very subtle strain of, of this this whole season exploring the theme of identity mm-hmm. and and we're going to get into that um, so this episode helped us put focus on what we consider the overarching theme for season three 
Articles published earlier in the year captured comments from the producers that this season was influenced by events transpiring in the United States. Now, I don't think it means that the season is addressing the political events um, that have been unfolding over the last four years directly. Instead, they are tackling the concept of identity. If you could frame it in a question, I think the entire series of activities we've seen since episode one to now is asking, who are we? Mm -hmm. I mean, each character has been struggling with their own concept of identity and how they are defined, defining it for themselves. So here are some examples of why I believe this. So Michael is deposited in the future for a year without her shipmates. She immediately attempts to find the Federation and, ad and adopts a purpose, finding, and that is finding the cause of the burn. Purpose and duty define who she is. Over the course of that year, she becomes accustomed to doing things in a different way. Then suddenly, she's reunited with them only to be required to find a way to compromise who she has become in order to fit back into uh, discovery again. Her struggle with that causes friction between herself and the crew, making her question her place among them. Right. In fact, she doesn't even resolve that until her mother forces her to examine that conflict when they're on Navarre. No, oh, yeah, definitely. So, so, so that's, that, that's how long it took to play out that, that line. Similarly, Nam, you remember Nam, our security officer, right. you know, she left her home planet of Barzan behind and joined Starfleet back in, back, you know, a thousand years ago to escape the poverty and despair of her people. Yet, when she was confronted with other Barzanians once again at the Seed Vault ship, she was, she was confronted with what she had been missing all along. Her longing for her own culture helped her decide to abandon discovery in lieu of an obligation that she felt back to her culture, her planet, to take up the responsibilities and uh, of of the seed ship, and and feel a reconnection back to her own culture. Yeah, and I think you could also talk about identity and Dr. Colbert. Right. So having been lost and confused himself, Colbert has been one member of the crew who has come into this season as a redefined identity. He has embraced the role of not just being the ship's doctor, but being a true healer. He has gone out of his way to help those in pain. Colbert has helped Detmer, Michael, and Giorgio navigate through a difficult mix of emotions all centered around their own struggles with identity and purpose. He is doing the same for Saru on the away mission, staying behind to help Saru stay on task. You know, it, and there's another one that, that I didn't message, but I probably should interject it here. Adira. Oh, yes. Adira yeah. also has yeah. been dealing with the sense of identity. I mean, becoming a human who, who takes on a trill symbiont, and she has all of the hosts preceding her that, she, that become part of who and what she is. That's, that, that's also an aspect of the way the story has been playing with that. And for her to come to Stamets later on and decide that she wants to be referred to not as her, but as they, mm -hmm. because she, that is the, what, what she perceives herself as. Again, redefining her identity based on her new, new awareness of who she of who they are. All right. 
So in uh, in the last two episodes, Giorgio's journey was also an acknowledgement of who she used to be is not who she has become. She passes the Guardian's weight test because she was transformed by her experiences in the Prime Universe. Right. And finally, the foundation of Star Trek are the guiding principles of the Federation. But this Federation is not what it once was. All season long, uh, we've been commenting on the nature of this 32nd century version of the Federation. This smaller, hidden, more reserved Federation is an odd thing. We've questioned its adherence to the organization's founding principles. We've wondered why so many of the founding members, Earth, Vulcan, and Andoria, have decided to leave the organization. And the Andorians, once an ally, are now an enemy. We've also compared the Federation to the Emerald Chain, observing their similarities. We have learned how both groups have used the in, have used intimidation to get their way with others. We've seen it from the Emerald Chain in their dealings with Quajan and the learned and learned of similar actions by the Federation with Vulcan during the SB19 testing. Finally, Giorgio gives Michael her assessment of the 32nd century just before she walks through the per- portal. Giorgio says, this era is different, more Terran than where you came from. If her conclusion is correct, then that would indicate Admiral Vance and the Federation are not as they appear to be. This answers, uh, the answers to these questions might not be fully resolved before the end of season three. Yeah, and in fact, I'm anticipating that they won't be answered before the end, but I think that that might be something that'll be set up that we'll have to come back in season four and explore. And, and, and to be honest, I'm not saying that the Federation is some evil entity. No. But what I am saying is that it, it appears, and, it, and we ju- we've just been paying attention, that they have lost their way to a certain yep. extent. And Definitely. they are not the organization that we, we, we were originally introduced to in the original series. That's right. You know, so, it's, so then if that's the case, how are they going to get back on a course where they are not hidden behind a different, deflection screen where they you know where they can really encourage other planets to become part of their group you know all right anyway the writers have only two episodes after this one to conclude this story in a satisfying manner you know there are still many questions left to be answered however i'm feeling confident that they're going to resolve many of those questions by season's end now I'm look, I don't think they're going to get all of them, but I do think they'll get enough of them that'll satisfy us. So I'm looking forward to them sticking the landing. <laughs> all right, let's move to our bits and pieces section. Yes. I first want to talk about Sylvia Tilly. So after some questionable choices for her character last season, we have come to appreciate the development of Tilly's character with credit going to... Uh, the writing staff, and the performance by Mary Wiseman in season three. It was clever of the writing staff to demonstrate Tilly's command potential through her mirror counterpart, Captain Killy. 
In the Prime Universe, when Tilly is given the calm and must deal with Osira, she displays her ability to command uh, within the throes of a crisis. Although she cannot prevent Osira from taking over the discovery, it is more of the fault of Stamets who questions the command to jump. And that, and that hesitation thus gives the Emerald Chain time to seize the ship. So I'm looking forward to how Tilly continues to prove herself in the next two episodes. Yeah, and in fact, from the, the, the trailer that we saw, it seems as if she actually leads the, the, the revolt to actually recapture control of the ship. So that'll be good. That'll be that good. will be good. That'll be good. Okay, move on to one of my favorite subjects, Jet Reno. <laughs> so in this episode, Jet had one line. One line. And appeared in only one scene in the entire episode. Now, she wasn't eating anything, so I was wrong in assuming <laughs> that snacking would become part of her bit. So, um, which is okay. I'm fine with that. I don't mind being wrong about that. <laughs> and, and some may look at this and say that she's underutilized. But if you think about it, I mean, if you really, really think about it, any function that Jet could have served in this story was actually done by Adira. That's right. Why? Because Adira is already a fully drawn character. And also because the actor who plays Adira, Blue Del Barrio, can remember her lines no matter how complex the dialogue, That's right. as well as to play a broad range of emotions. That's right. We've seen that throughout this season. That's right. And so I think that it, it that if we're talking about production time and how long you're actually going to take to shoot something. And by her own admission, Tig says that, Tig Nataro says that she has to repeat, they have to reshoot her scenes quite a bit so that they actually can get her accurately saying right. the few lines that they give her. Yeah, she actually said in an interview, you know, and she was not exaggerating, that in the second season uh, that there the director actually had to sit by her and just feed her lines yeah. because she couldn't remember yeah. them. And so I think, I know there are a lot of people who find her interesting and they love her quips and whatnot. And they just like her as a comedian. Right, they like her as a comedian. They think she's, a, she, they, they, and they want to see more. I don't believe that we're capable of actually, I don't think no. she's capable of doing that. Right. And I think that's the reason why we're not going to see a whole lot more of her than what she's doing right now. Right. In this show. I think they're just preparing the audience for, oh, you'll see, you may see her occasionally. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I think this is kind of like the beginning of the end. Well, I, I won't go so far as to say that. What I would say is I think that we're going to have to become comfortable with her not really being present right. in the show. Yeah, she's and, not really one of the major characters. Right. Yeah. Because, like I said... I think that they solved the problem of having another engineering genius in the show when they created Adira. Yeah. So I guess I get I must talk about Detmer. You know, so this is our <laughs> Detmer watch segment. Detmer had a rough time this time navigating through the Veruban Nebula. It seems some of the anxiety she shows earlier this season has been replaced by greater levels of confidence. So this is good. Yeah, and I think that she's gonna actually play a part in the recapturing of the discovery. Yep. So that's good. 
So we want to now move to our segment, Insufficient Facts Always Invite Danger. As you remember, these are topics that crop up from episode to episode concerning Star Trek history, characters, uh, other episodes, uh, canonical allusions, or it just may be a genuine Easter egg. So Gary, why don't you go first? Okay, so mine is a bit different than what we've usually done. Okay. My... Um, insufficient fact is actually Paul Stamets, and I'm, I'm talking about the real one. Okay, <laughs> but, but since not the fictional one, not, but, but the but, one living and breathing now. Right, but yeah. but since he was such such an important element of the sport drive, played a critical reason as to why Osira was seeking them, and and then he wasn't able to jump. I I like to explore him because I think he's doing some really interesting things connected to certain. Um, real world events that are going on. Okay. Okay. So as you know, Paul Stamets is the world's leading mycologist and he has proposed creating a research station on a remote island in Canada to protect an old growth forest which contains a rare type of ancient fungus, which he believes could protect people against COVID-19 and other possible pandemics in the future. Stamets as, is an expert in medicinal use and the history of fungi. And he explains that the coronavirus is a natural fit because fungus has been used to treat rep- respiratory infections for thousands of years. Hmm. Some may have heard Stamets through his TED Talk, um, which was titled Six Ways Mushrooms Can Save the World, which garnered over 3 million views on YouTube. Others may have read his book, Mycelium Running, or come across his numerous journalistic reports on his famous use of mycelium to clean out oil spills and other and even nuclear radiation. Mm. So, I mean, he's found an amazing number of uses for basically mushrooms. mushrooms. All right. <laughs> but regarding his the current pandemic, the um, agricon mushroom is just one of several species that he's been working with to cure the illness throughout the world. Stamets has found that the fungus is in a large supply throughout the old growth forests in British Columbia's Cortez Island. And basically he says this, this rare old growth mushroom has a multi-thousand year history of use in Europe. Stamets uh, told this to Rochelle Baker of Canada's National Observer where, while he was doing his research there. Um, he notes that an ancient Greek physician, uh, Diocortes, actually described Erikon in his work, calling it an elixir for long life, particularly when used to treat tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. He calls the the Ergarkon um, mushroom of Cortes Island too valuable while living to harvest. Um, they can survive between 75 and 150 years, but um, are endangered in Europe and Mm. rare in North America. Um, Stamets is trying to capture as many strains as possible by taking small samples of the fruiting bodies to find um, help and ways in which the species can recover. Mm. He's used these species, such as the garden giant, or the oyster mushroom to advance his science called um, miso restor- um, rest- restoration. 
by proving that they can clean up septic runoffs and toxic hydrocarbon oil spills, both in the ocean and on the land, respectively. So, I mean, he's actually finding a great number of ways in which mushrooms can can basically save the world. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's and that's technology where we don't have to build a huge device. Right. He's basically taking nature and using it in, yeah. a, in, a, in a position that actually has been done for thousands of years. Exactly. So. He's not using chemicals or right, something exactly. like that, other pollutants. Right. He's actually using something of nature right. to help us with our societal ills. Right. And and in fact, if it if it works, I mean he could make sure that we're protected from another year like this all over the planet. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. So for my insufficient fact, I'm going to talk about cloaking devices. Sorry, I have to go back to the fictional That's okay. world of Star Trek. I don't have any problem. <laughs> okay, so when Osiris' ship confronts the Discovery, at one point, both ships attempt to deploy their cloaking devices. Now, uh, cloaking devices use technology to afford the bending of light to shield a ship from being physically detected. However, the devices are made inoperable on both ships when Sukal lets out his cry. Right. The surprise here is that cloaking device technology appears to be an accepted part of Federation uh, 32nd century technology after many years of being unable to deploy it due to the Treaty of Algeron signed between the United Federation of Planets and the Romulan Star Empire uh, in the year 2311. The treaty reinforced and redefined the Romulan neutral zone and made clear that any violations of the zone without adequate notification by either side would be considered an act of war. The treaty also expressly prohibited the development or use of cloaking device technology by the Federation. There were, there were some in the Federation that felt the treaty allowed a tactical advantage for the Romulans that should not be tolerated. In the year 2358, Captain Pressman of the USS Pegasus attempted to circumvent the Federation ban by covertly developing a phasing cloaking device with the assistance of some Starfleet intelligence officer. And in fact, uh, serving on that ship as right. first officer well, was... none other than... Riker. William T. Riker. Right, who, you know, as you know, became the first officer on uh, the Enterprise. Duh. <laughs> However, the testing of uh, the device on the USS Pe Pegasus led to a fatal catastrophe mm -hmm. as part of the ship phased into an asteroid, killing many members of the crew. This story is dramatized in the Next Generation episode, The Pegasus, which was in season seven, it was episode 12. It was truly, actually, to me, one of the best written of the episodes of the series. Yeah, one of the things that's not made clear, but it's implied the reason why the Federation tries to create a phasing cloaking device is it, it provides it with a different technology so that they could actually compete. They could actually make a argument that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't violate 
the treaty. The treaty, right. right? Because it phases. It's not just, just a cloak. Right. It phases through. Yeah. But then that phasing becomes a problem. Right, exactly. <laughs> so during the 24th century, there was one sanctioned use of the cloaking device by the Federation uh, with the consent of the Romulans after a series of conflicts with the Dominion that eventually led to a full-scale war. The cloaking device was only to be used in the Gamma Quadrant, at least that. Right, that was, that was, the, that was the agreement. That was the agreement. <laughs> However, as commander of the USS Defiant, Captain Benjamin Sisko and his crew violated the terms on several occasions. Yes, they did. By using the cloaking device in the Alpha Quadrant. Yep. And so you can see there's a couple of episodes where they do this. Uh, one was The Way of the Warrior, uh, and that's season four, episodes one and two of Deep Space Nine. And then uh, also Trials and Tribulations uh, from season five, episode six. Sometime before the 32nd century, it appears the Treaty of Alderaan lost its relevancy after the Romulans joined the, their Vulcan cousins, who were one of the founders of the Federation. Yeah, I, I suspect that that happens soon after they lose their home planet. Right. And become, a, a, the, the Star Empire is no longer this massive threat that it once was. And it realigns the the powers that be in in the in the universe. Yep, I agree. So let's let's move on to Star Trek news. This week, I think we have a couple of intri- uh, intriguing news stories from the world of Trek. So, Adele, will you please? So I want to start off first by talking about Star Trek Picard. In September, TrekMovie.com first reported that production on Star Trek Picard's second season would begin in January 2021. Last month, actor Evan Evagora confirmed that plan. But on Thursday, well, last Thursday on Christmas Eve, actress Jerry Ryan responded to a fan question on Twitter, revealing a new start date, and that is... Uh, of February 1st, 2021. No reason was given for the delay. Well, I think that it might have something to do with the surge in in coronavirus cases that California is being hit by. Right. And the fact that, you know, the the titular character is played by a man who's advanced in age. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they might be taking some precautions. I don't know. I'm just, I'm spitballing here. Okay. Okay. But unlike Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek New, Strange New Worlds, which is uh, slotted uh, to be starting production this year, this coming year, uh, both of those are filmed in Toronto, Canada. Star Trek Picard shoots in Southern California, which is, like as I said, in the middle of this COVID-19 surge. Uh, and not only is Patrick Stewart somebody who might be in that endangered age group. Well, not might, is. Yeah, well, yeah, well, is. You also have reports that Whoopi Goldberg is going to be guest starring this coming season. Yeah, and she, as you know, she lives in the New York area. Right, right, right. And so, you know, it could be possibility that, 
you know, they have to delay because of her. Because I know she's been very, very careful about the coronavirus. And, you know, when she even does her show, her television show, she's still uh, doing that from home. Okay. Yes. So I suspect that those are, that might be factors that are playing into this. Um, And hopefully they can secure everything and make everybody feel confident. You know, and we'll we'll be able to get production started. Well, fairly hopefully, soon. confident and safe. Yes, we want yes, it gets, yes, yes, absolutely. Now let's talk about the Ready Room. The December twenty fourth installment of the Ready Room began with a brief feature concerning the filming of the episode "Sue Call" with actors Doug Jones and Wilson Cruz, who portray Saru and Dr. Hugh Colbert, respectively. Then Will Wheaton interviewed Jones and Janice Kidder. Kidder, who plays the role of Osira, commented on how grateful she was to join the Star Trek universe and hoped she could continue portraying her character. So unless we're hearing her wrong, it does not appear Osira will meet her death this season. No, it doesn't seem as if she is going to meet her death <laughs> at the end of this season. So that was a that was an interesting way. That was a of, spoiler. That was a spoiler that should have been put up. But yeah, yeah. so we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. So the next bit of news is actually news that's been withheld for more than a decade. That's right. So actor James Duhon's family is celebrating after keeping a major secret for the past 12 years. The late Duhon, who portrayed Chief Engineer Montgomery Scotty Scott on the, the original series, had his ashes smuggled aboard the International Space Station in 2008, where they finally floated in space today. <laughs> um, they were placed there by Richard Garrett, an entrepreneur who was one of the first private citizens able to afford a chance to be an astronaut through the private venture. So, yeah, because just remember, anybody who was a private citizen, yes. you had to pay big-time bucks yes. to go up in space. Yes. Because that's how they would fund those ventures. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, that's always been something that's been purported as a possible way of of financing the the space program, the if we were to you know, make it available for very rich people right. to pay exorbitant prices right. for those. But, you know, are there that many rich people on the planet to keep it afloat? I mean, I, I guess who, who really want that opportunity? Yeah, 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 you know. Anyway, I neither here nor there. We now know that Scotty is floating above us in space around the around the country. So according to one of uh, Duhan's son, in fact, the the one Chris, Chris Duhan, who has played him in some of the fan oh, right. fiction um, ep- uh, filmed episodes of Star Trek on on online. So he says, I have been keeping this a secret for over twelve years. The Starship Enterprise engineer has traveled nearly one point seven billion miles through space orbiting Earth more than 70,000 times after its ashes were hidden secretly on the International Space Station. So that's pretty cool. I mean, I thought that's a pretty cool thing. You know, they probably, if they had asked, they probably would not have gotten permission to do it. But now since he's been up there, and he's been up there for 12 years, his ashes 
you know, they probably said, okay, what the hell? Let's yeah. just continue on with it. Well, I mean, what are they going to do? They, they, they don't have a giant space vacuum they can go get it. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let's move on to um, other the last bit of news, and that's a happy birthday! Yay! Yeah, we want to wish Nichelle Nichols a belated but heartfelt happy birthday. Ms. Nichols, best known for her portrayal of Lieutenant Uhura on the original season, the best lieutenant, Uhura. the best lieutenant Uhura, <laughs> turned eighty-eight on December twenty-eighth. So we want to recognize that. Uh, if it hadn't been for COVID, she would have been doing her uh, final goodbye yeah. co- convention this year. But, you know, um, coronavirus had other plans. That's right. So in closing, we'll be back next week to break down the penultimate episode of the season. And that is entitled, There is a Tie. Another change that they made. Yeah, recently. Like, right, recently. Yeah. Yeah. So this episode will be directed by fan favorite Jonathan Frakes. Red alert! (laughs) The episode continues to follow the Discovery crew attempting to free themselves from Osira and the Emerald Chain Gang. There is a tide, dot, 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 will drop in the U.S. on New Year's Eve, Thursday, December 31st, on CBS All Access. In Canada... Catch it on CTV Sci-Fi Channel, as well as streaming on Crave. Finally, international audiences can see the show on Netflix beginning on New Year's Day, January 1st. But until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, um, Facebook... And at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where you will we'll offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at, at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs>